the uh, sermon passage this morning um, from uh, John. Uh, So if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 17, I'll be reading from verses 13 to 19. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. That will be helpful. Um, My name is Sam. If we haven't met, special welcome if you're visiting. It's great to have you with us. We are in John chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into that passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, precious moment for us, Um, this moment in our week where we come together as family, brothers and sisters together, and come under your word. And so we pray that it would do that which it is purposed to do, like the passage says, that we would be sanctified in the truth because your word is truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, there's a lot of different ways that uh, you can get to know a person, right? Um, in the Think about our church family, brothers and sisters here. There's lots of different ways you've gotten to know each other. Uh, probably just coming along on Sundays is a good place to start. We see each other. We see each other singing. We can hear each other singing. We get to know each other a little bit like that. We, we, hear people, we see one another coming under God's Word. We see each other before the service, perhaps, after the service, have a chat, maybe even catch up during the week. Have people over for meals, catch up for coffee, read the Bible together, all these kinds of things. We can even stalk each other on socials, right? It is always stalking in my book, right? It just doesn't, um, it, it doesn't come in any other way. So we can do all of these things, but I haven't mentioned one thing, one I think actually very precious thing that really does help you get to know someone in a particular way, and that is when you hear someone pray. Don't you love to hear brothers and sisters pray. It's actually just a, such a special insight into something very, I don't know, private-ish. Like generally, we're not, in, we're not encouraged to listen in on other people's conversations. That's socially unacceptable. We love to do it though. It's, um, it's enjoyable and it's, it can be quite funny. But prayer is not like that. Very often, someone is speaking to the Lord and you're there. They're not speaking to you, but we're invited into that holy, precious moment where someone is speaking to God Himself, and we're edified by it, aren't we? We're encouraged by it. You see a different side. You, you, you hear someone talk, you go, I've never heard you talk like that. Well, it's because we talk to God different. We hear their worship. We hear awe. We hear the things on their hearts. Things that might say to God that you might not say to other people because, well, God is God. You can, you can bring things to Him that you can't bring to other people. It's a precious thing. It's a precious way of getting to know someone. So how precious is John chapter 17? Another prayer we get to listen on, in on, except this time, it's the eternal Son of God praying to His Father on the night before he dies. It's an extraordinary kind of, I think, pulling back of the curtain to see things which are otherwise secret things within the holy, almighty Trinity. So our passage is verses 13 to 19. The whole chapter of chapter 17 is one long prayer. And it's, some people say, this, this is the actual Lord's Prayer, you know. Like the Lord's Prayer that we usually think of the, is, is actually our prayer. He's telling us, you should pray this. But this is truly the Lord's Prayer, the longest prayer written in the Bible 
from the Son to the Father on the night before he dies. We've already heard from verses 1 to 5, Jesus prayed for himself, Father, glorify the Son. Then he turns to his disciples to pray for his disciples, which I think by extension is really directly us. Now, I don't think you find anything prayed for for the disciples which aren't immediately applicable to us. And that began last week. It's continuing this week in that part where he prays for his disciples. So that means that we're not just in this moment invited into this holy moment where Jesus is praying. In this part of that moment, we're hearing Jesus pray for us. That's extraordinary. It's always a blessing to be prayed for. I I love to be prayed for. Whether you're a brand new Christian the day before, or you've been a saint decades longer than me, it's just such a blessing to be prayed for. But here, I'll say it again, we hear Jesus praying for us. Jesus prays for us. What will he pray? I wonder what you would think. I wonder what he would pray. On this night, I think we can assume he'll pray ultimate things. The greatest things. Right? He could pray all kinds of things, but he prays these things. There could have been so many great, good things he could pray for. He chose these and not others. I think we learn the things that Jesus wants most for us by what we find in here. And you kind of learn a bit about what he leaves off. It's interesting what he doesn't pray for. And if there's any gap between what is important to us and what is important for us from Jesus, it'll probably show up in our prayers. What does he thank God for and what do we thank God for mostly? What does he praise God for and what are we praising God for most of the time? I think ours are likely far more temporal-minded than Jesus, what Jesus prays in this chapter. I think ours are probably far more this-worldly than what Jesus focuses on in this chapter. I think ours are probably very earthly in all of those ways, whereas Jesus focuses on the spiritual, the eternal, the most ultimate things. So, what has Jesus mentioned so far in this section where he's praying for his disciples? He has thanked the Father for giving these disciples to him. He says, you gave them to me. He has prayed for the Father's protection over those that he has given to him. And he prays that they would be one, united together. So he just goes, now is very interesting. He goes, I think, to pray for our lives in the world. So Jesus begins, look there in the passage, begins, verse 13, first words, but now he says to the Father, I am coming to you. That's his destination. It's not kind of like heaven in general. I, Jesus, the Son says to the Father, I am coming to you. But what we know from earlier is that the disciples are not going with Jesus. They are staying in the world. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would turn his attention, since he is going to the Father and they are not, they are staying in the world, that Jesus turns his attention to pray for their lives in the world. Their future depends on how they live and go on living in the world. In fact, the future of the world depends on how these disciples are going to live in the world. And I think we're going to see this clear. This prayer is not only born out of love for the disciples. I think we see throughout this prayer that this, what Jesus prays for the disciples is born out of his love, not just for them, but for the world. He loves the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And the son is leaving, but God's love for the world remains. And so now he sends his disciples into the world, because God still loves the world. How are we meant to live in the world? What do you answer that? What are the first things that come to your mind, your instincts, your posture? How are we meant to live in the world? Surely you think about it probably regularly. It's actually a massive question that Christians have asked themselves and, and thought about kind of ever since the beginning. Book after book after book has been written to kind of answer this question, to help think through the intersection between 
Christians and culture. How then shall we live? How, how ought we to live in the world? And so some books are written and they're to, we're told um, that, well, they emphasize that we should kind of make war on the culture. You know, we're going we're gonna to go to war and we're going to fight and we're going to be victorious over the culture. Some say that we ought to come, kind of come underneath the culture and more like transform the culture. And that's the Christian's job. Others say we should isolate ourselves from the world, probably do our own thing. Let's get out of there. That is a wicked, evil kind of place. And some, I think, echo the message of the world, which is the church, if it's going to live in the culture, must become like the culture or it will die. Isn't that, and that's basically what the culture says. Like, hey, adapt or die. We are building a world, and if you want to be part of it, you better join in. Otherwise, there's actually no place for you in the world that we're creating. How then shall we live? It's an important question. I don't think we'll do any better than what Jesus says in these verses this morning. He packs an amazing amount of wonderful things to describe our lives in the world. I've got six. I've counted six. The first one is to be joyful in the world. Second, that we'll be hated by the world. Three, to not be isolated from the world. Four, to not compromise with the world. Five, to be sanctified by the truth of God's Word in the world. And finally, sent into the world. You don't have to remember all that. We'll go through it. I'll repeat them. Firstly, be joyful in the world. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, Jesus prays, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so follow the verse. Firstly, Jesus says what He has done. What has He done? He has spoken, He says, these things. I have spoken these things. These things I take to mean, at minimum, the things that He's just been praying so far in John chapter 17, at least. What are those kinds of things? Things like, the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. I've said these things, Jesus says, that the Son has authority to give eternal life to all that the Father gives Him. He says things like, this is eternal life, that they would know the Father, that they would know the Son. Jesus says things like, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. I have manifested your name to those who you have given me out of the world. I have given your words to them that you gave to me. Jesus says things like, all mine are yours and yours are mine. I kept them in your name, and he prays that the Father will guard his people. I've said these things, Jesus says, in the world, in that, in the darkness of the world, I have said these things. Why? To what end? That, what does it say? They may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus speaks all these things. That his joy that he has would be fulfilled, completed, filled to the brim in them with his joy. It's amazing. That there is a link between the reality of the things that Jesus has just been saying, the things are just kind of listed off. Jesus has joy in those things. Those things bring him joy. Remember what Hebrews says, like, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He had great joy in all of these things that are wrapped up in salvation and the things he's been praying about. He has that joy. He then says these things to others, not just so that they would have some information and some doctrine and they would kind of understand some more information, have mental assent to some of the things that, that, he, that he has joy in. No, it's so that in the transfer of those glorious things, they would enjoy it as He does. They would have His kind of joy. That's amazing. He said something similar in chapter 15. I don't know if you remember that. What While Jesus was speaking in chapter 15 about the wonder of union with Christ, He's like, I am the vine. You are the branches. And the Father is the vine dresser. And He prunes the vine so that it will bear much fruit and he ties all of these things in obedience to him and remaining in his love and he says all of these just unbelievable realities and descriptions of the christian life jesus says and i want you to know why i'm telling you all of this verse 
chapter 15, verse 11, These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm not just passing on information. I'm not just passing on information for information's sake. It leads somewhere. It leads to you having my joy completed, fulfilled in you. Uh, John Piper is famous for saying this line, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And it's a beautiful way of framing things so that, so that things that we, might, we ought not separate, we don't do that. Right? That there'd be God's glory over here and God's seeking His glory and that has nothing to do with kind of our joy. So no, actually, the way the Bible frames it is that God is most glorified whilst we are enjoying Him. We are satisfied in Him. He gets glory like that. The Westminster Confession, uh, sorry, the Westminster Catechism um, asks as, a, as its first question, and we used it in our, um, our catechism that we've been doing in Gospel Communities. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. His glory, our joy. So it's not a surprise that Jesus prays at the beginning of this high priestly prayer, He says, Father, glorify Your Son, His glory. But then when He turns to pray for the disciples, He says, I've said these things, including Father, glorify your Son. Why? That my joy would be complete in you. He is sharing His joy. I think love does that. If you know something um, and it brings you a lot of joy and, and you just know that you know, someone you love would actually get a lot of joy out of knowing this thing, then what do you do? You tell them. Right? And, and so that, so that not, not so that they just know something, it's so that they can share in the joy and you know what will They'll find that joyful, right? When someone sends out a, you know, uh, an engagement message, they don't frame it like, just to inform everyone, you know, just to let you know, a bit of information, just to keep you up to date, we're engaged. Right? They don't do it like that, because it's joy. Other people don't respond and go, oh, good, uh, good to be updated, you know. You'd be like, okay, you, you've missed the point. Right, the, the idea here was not the sharing of information. It was the sharing of joy, happiness. It's a wonderful moment. Remember the angel said to the shepherds, I was thinking about that, the, the day Jesus is born, Luke 2, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. See, it's not just news. It's good news. It's good news that actually evokes a response. It's actually, of, it's defined by great joy. So it's obviously loving to the disciples that Jesus has said these things because He wants them to have His joy. But I think it's also loving, Jesus, is that, that He says these things for the joy of the, the disciples for the sake of the world. The world has to see that we don't, believers, just agree with the Bible. The world needs to see that in the gospel, we've, we have found a treasure for which we would sell everything in our joy so that we would have it. The world's not interested in just kind of ideas that are disconnected from the reality of a person's life and their satisfaction. And the world is desperate for joy, searching everywhere for joy, hungry, thirsty, from thing to thing, but just coming up with emptiness, vapor, nothing. And joy is on offer in the gospel. Um, John Piper wrote a book, when he wrote a book called on world missions, he called the book on world missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. Right? It's a quote from Psalm 67. So in it he writes these words. He says, You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, Let the nations be glad. If they cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 104. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. But it will bring you great joy. 
So Jesus has fullness of joy in these things himself. The joy set before him. He says these things to the disciples so that they can have that joy. But Jesus loves the world. And so they're staying in the world with that joy so they can pass on these things and invite others into it. Are our lives marked by joy in this world? I think that's our reputation, Christians? Maybe, maybe not. Well, it ought to. We have every reason to. Um, and so part of how we live in the world is having joy in these things. So just remember these things. Even go back and read over the things that Jesus has been saying, just even in chapter 17. And just see, does, does joy, does, does an actual, experiential, subjective sense of joy come? The Father's given these people to me. He's guarding them. He's guarding us. Father, glorify your Son. The cross, the resurrection. These are told not for your information only, but for your joy. That was the first one. Okay, second way we, we are going to live in the world. This is less like a prayer for this to happen and just a kind of reality. You will be hated by the world. Verse 14, I've given them your word, Jesus prays, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So, so just notice what leads to the world's hate. Do you see that? Jesus prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Right, so Jesus just said, these things I speak to the world, so that's his word, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Right, you look back at verse 8, it said, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. So we've got the same word doing all kinds of different things, don't we? The same word that's been received by them, it's the word that, brings, that, that transfers the joy that Jesus has to them. The receiving of that word, the receiving of that word is their entry into truth. And as well, it's the same word that causes the world to hate them. You get joy, you get entry into truth, and you get hatred from the world. The same word that brings peace with God makes us enemies with the world. The same word that brings us into the love of God brings us into the hatred of the world. The same word that gives us peace with God creates division with us and the world. Because to be of one is not to be of the other. You can't be both. Right? We have those moments in our lives, don't we? Where we just like, okay, I can't have both. I can't be both. I can't both live in Queensland and Antarctica. I can't do it. Well, maybe you can. I don't know. I don't think you can. I can't both eat donuts every day and lose weight. I can't have both. Right? I can't be both early and late to the next event. I can't be both. And neither can you be both of the world and united to Christ. You cannot be both united to Christ and, and united to the world. You cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of Christ. Think of Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus asks a question there. And I think when we hear the question asked, we naturally go, softball question. This is very easy. Okay? When Jesus asks this question, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Yes. Man, next question. Thank you. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. There will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So he does come to bring peace, of course he does. But that's vertical peace, peace between us and God. That exact peace leads to division horizontally necessarily. Division, even in a family, the most undividable of relationships, Jesus says, that peace with me leads to division even there. James 4 verse 4, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's what it is. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus just been praying. Uh, so, sorry, just, just been pre- uh, preaching on this back in chapter 15 again. Do you remember that? Just a few weeks ago. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's how our verse ends, doesn't it? You see our verse? The world has hated them, Jesus prays, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Just as. Like Christ, we are not of the world. And so like Christ, we are hated by the world. Now to be clear, we do not hate the world back. Right? When it talks about friendship with the world, it's talking about just aligning yourself with the world, being of the world, taking on the world's values and the world's system of rebellion against God. That, that's, that's no good. But we do love the world. We love people who aren't Christians. Um, our world just doesn't really have a category for that anymore, where you go, I disagree with you and I love you. The world will go, no, you disagree with me, that means you hate me. And we're just going to not be able to budge on that. We're going to go, okay, we just fundamentally disagree. That, that's not possible. We think that's possible. We think we can say, I disagree with you. I'm calling you in the name of Christ to repent of this thing. I love you. I absolutely love you. We just think that's possible. And that happens. Uh, we, we, we like to listen to this as a rap song by Bizzle. You can look it up. And the chorus goes like this. It just repeats this. You can hate me, but you ain't getting no hate back. You can hate me, but you ain't getting no hate back. Because all the hating in the world can't make me a hater. There, there you go. I'm now a rapper. Yeah, it's pretty good, wasn't it? Spitting bars. Okay, so there you go. That's point number two. Hated in the world. Number three. We will not be isolated from the world. Verse 15 begins. Notice this. It says, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So in this moment, we're instructed by what Jesus says, and this is not what I'm praying. Jesus prays the thing that he's not praying. He's saying, I'm not praying this. I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. The disciples, I'm sure, might have been disappointed by this. They have just heard that Jesus pray, I am coming to you, and they've just heard that they're going to be hated by the world, and Jesus says also, and you're not coming out of it. You're staying. Shame. Throughout church history, Christians have been tempted to remove themselves from the world. Right? Either to escape kind of the uncomfortableness, like hatred of the world, escape that, or to escape the potential contamination of the world in our hearts. And so that's where like monasteries come from. That's where they head off into the desert to live in the desert. I need to escape from the world, I need to remove myself, isolate myself from the world. Because the world is the kind of place you've got to get away from. And Jesus says specifically, I do not pray, Father, that you take them out of the world. You are to stay in the world that hates you. Are you tempted towards this? Is that maybe one of your instincts? Man, I'm I'm done with the world, you know. And it's just safer if I just isolate myself from the world. And we kind of live in a day where there's enough kind of Christian subculture to pretty much cut yourself off from the world, right? We've got enough Christian music and Christian movies and Christian radio and Christian sport and you just make Christian clothes and all of that that you could probably you could probably get through your life not too bad. You can work from home, you don't have to go to work with other people and you could get your groceries delivered so you don't have to go to Woolies and meet other people and you could basically, you could kind of get, get away with it. And just decide, essentially, that my faith is now a private faith. It's personal. And it's not for others. It's not to be shared. It's not to be, it's not to be shone like a light, of course. It's not to be like salt in the world. No. It's too dangerous. Because, of course, along with that decision is a decision not to follow Jesus anymore, really who came into the world. How are you going to love your neighbor if you're isolated from your neighbor? How are you going to love your enemies if you just hide from them? 
How are we going to make disciples of all the nations if we remove ourselves from the lots? William Wilberforce said, there's a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. God so loved the world that He did not choose isolation from the world. He sent His only begotten Son. Think of Paul's words. I was thinking about Paul's words in in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Listen to these words. It's, It's helpful. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You might think, oh, okay. So I can remove myself from the world then. But he goes on and says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I'm not talking about them. It's those who like, claim to name brother, like claim the name Christ and act like that. But the world, no. You actually can't cut yourself off the world from the world. To actually sin in the contamination of sin is actually not out there. It's also in here. Where you go, it goes. So there it is. We do not isolate ourselves from the world. That was number three. Number four, we are called to not compromise with the world. Verse 15 continues after saying, I'm not praying for that. This is what he is praying, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So after saying what he's not praying for, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but what I am praying is this, that they would be kept from the evil one. Their remaining in the world is not a concession that, and they're handing them over to the world, and they'll be lost. Right? They're staying in the world, and so the evil one is basically going to win. That is not a concession to that. Jesus prays that they stay and they remain kept from the evil one. Remaining, but not becoming like the world. Jesus wants us in the world, but not compromised with the world. So in Jesus' death, the very next day, in his resurrection, Satan himself will be dealt a fatal blow. We know that. John chapter 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 16, 11, talking about the ministry, remember, of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit into the world. It will convict the world of, and one of the things is, judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And yet, Satan is still permitted to roam around. He's had his fatal blow, and yet allowed to roam around and to afflict the world. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you've got Satan and he's in the world. And you've got Jesus praying, and I'm not taking them out of the world. So then what's, what's the prayer? It's that you keep them from the evil one whilst they remain there. That you keep them from, essentially, the greatest danger, which is to our souls. You know, Jesus is not saying, and I pray that you just keep them from bad health. You know, they're remaining in the world, and it's a fallen world, and it's got all kind of curse going on. And so I, whilst they remain in the world, I pray that you keep them disease-free. I pray, that you, you, I pray that you would just pour out bucket loads of money on them so that they never have a worry financially. I'm going to pray that. Because why? Because it's not our greatest danger. It's our souls He cares about. If they remain in the world, oh, but you would keep them from what? The evil one. John Carson writes this, he says, But if the Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous, The safety that only God Himself can provide is assured, as certainly as the prayers of God's own dear Son will be answered. Because I wonder if we just, we might feel, you might feel this morning like, man, it feels hopeless. Like I'm living in this world and I just feel compromised to the roof. And I'm losing hope that I can even live in this world and be kept from the evil one. And, and, and then you just hear story after story, it just seems like, of, of maybe Christian leaders that we were looked up to and, and learned from, and, and there just constantly seems to be story after story of them falling, disqualifying themselves, committing apostasy, 
affairs, all these kinds of things. And you just think, is it possible? Is it possible to be still in the world and kept from the evil one? Jesus prayed for it. Let that be enough. He prays to the Father for that end. So we can, with God's help. We must not compromise with a world that is under Satan's power. Why would we do that? Why would we compromise with a world like that? Out of love for the world, we must not compromise with it. Out of love for the world, we must not compromise with it. They want us to, of course. They say, compromise or go away. And we say, we love you too much. We love the world too much. Um, I read a quote uh, by the historian Tom Holland. He's not a Christian, uh, but he's been writing about the history of Christianity and things like that. Anyway, it's, it's so interesting. He's, he, he wrote this. He said, I see no point in bishops or preachers of Christian... Sorry, start again. I see no point in bishops or preachers or Christian evangelists just recycling the kind of stuff you can get from any kind of soft left liberal. Because everyone is giving it that. If they've got views on original sin, I would be very interested to hear it. Interesting. Because the day we decide, oh, we're just going to go over the way with the world, we're just going to compromise on everything, it's the day we become utterly irrelevant with nothing to say. You're just saying what everyone else is saying. That's by definition to become irrelevant. No, the church has a message. And Tom Holland, a non-Christian, says, I'd like to hear different ideas. What have you got? You believe in original sin. Explain it. Now, the best thing we've got is the gospel. We don't just parrot the world. Okay. So if we neither withdraw from the world nor compromise with the world, what do we do? That's the fifth thing. Be sanctified by the truth of God's word. Verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We're neither isolated from the world nor compromised with the world, but sanctified by God's truth in the world. Amazing. To be sanctified is to be made holy, pure, kept pure. It's also used to set apart something for a particular purpose or a mission or an activity. It's set apart. That is a holy instrument. That is set apart for that cause. So to be holy, to be set apart for a purpose. So what's it that sets us apart? What sets apart Christians in the world? I wonder how you answer that. I mean, you know, is it our clothes? You know, do we have a uniform? Should we have a uniform? Maybe we should. I don't know. Do we have badges? Maybe we should be wearing badges. Is that what's going to set us apart in the world? We, the Christians, we are the ones who do X, Y, Z. Or is it like, do we, we listen to this music and that's what sets us apart from the world? Or we have this kind of attitude, or whatever it is. We have this kind of hairstyle. Like, those are the, that's a Christian hairstyle. Maybe that would be helpful. How are we sanctified in the world? How are we set apart in the world? What does Jesus say? In the truth which he defines, your word is truth. Well, Jesus, of course, is the very word of God. He said that I am the truth, the way, the truth, the life. For us, I think the ultimate fulfillment, of course, is the word, the word word, like the Bible, the word of God. We are sanctified by this book. It is the word of truth. It's the word about Jesus, centered on Jesus. It's the realm of our sanctification. You want to know what sets us apart? It's everything in here, in this book. We don't go beyond this book. We don't find our distinction in this book plus other things. That would be to be a Pharisee. Right? They were sanctified in the world. They lived separate lives in the world. They, did, they were very distinct. But not by the Word of God. They wasn't guided and guarded by the Word of God. They just added things onto that to show how distinct and how separate they were. Well, that's not the goal. We also don't want to have the truth and not be sanctified by it. That would be hypocrisy. Yeah, we agree with everything in the Bible. I am not sanctified by it. Like, I don't actually live according to it. I don't actually do the things that it says. I'm not shaped by God's Word. I just agree with it. And so I'll yell at the world, all the things that's wrong with it, basically in the exact same way that the world yells at us. Right? Hated by the world, I hate you back. You mock me, I'm going to mock you back. Right? Well, you got the truth, but you're not sanctified yet by the truth. And of course then, we've already said this, we cannot change the truth to fit into the world, right? 
because that would then not to be sanctified by the truth. It'd be the exact opposite of that. The Word of God is the appointed means here of our sanctification, our being set apart, our being made holy, different, distinct. It's why, as a church, we intend at least for everything that we do together to be infused with the Word of God. Because it's the instrument that God's given us for our sanctification, our distinction in the world. It's here that we hear the, the voice of God. It's here that we get the will of God. It's in His Word that we, that we can think God's type thoughts in the world. Our values, every time we open the Bible, every time we open the book and, and, and we hear a sermon, we are being shaped by the truth. We're being sanctified. Our values are being rearranged to that of the kingdom of God. Our hearts are being convicted of sin so that we repent of things that the world is just not repenting of. We are being sanctified by the truth. The world says greed is good. We go to the book and the book says it sanctifies us. It says greed is not good. Generosity is good. Right? We go back out into the world and it says you define who you are. And we go back to the Bible and it sanctifies us and it says God will tell you who you are. We go into the world and it tells you that pride is good. And we go back to the Bible and it sanctifies and it says humility is good. And every single time we go back to the Bible and it is sanctifying us in the truth of God. The world says, hate your enemies. We go back to the Bible, it sanctifies us in the truth. It says, love your enemies. The world says, love yourself. We go back to the Bible. And it sanctifies us and it says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. So we live in the world, but we are sanctified in the world by the truth of God. That was number five. We're up to number six, last one. We are sent into the world. Verse 18, Jesus prays, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we are not only a people who have been chosen out of the world, and we're not only a people who are to remain in the world, and we're not only a people who are to remain distinct and sanctified in the world, we have also been sent by God into the world with the mission to the world. So the key words are as and so, right? It's as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Um, lots and lots of Christian books have been written make much of this kind of this verse and another one that comes a bit later in chapter 20 uh, verse 21 after the resurrection Jesus says this he says peace be with you to the disciples as the father has sent me so I am sending you and the, 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 the main thing the trick to get with these this phrase this sending is to get what is there where is there the continuity between the Jesus mission and our mission and where's the discontinuity between Jesus mission and our mission, and books and books and books. And this kind of all happened when I was at Bible college. So you just got to bear with me because I had to write essays about this, these verses, you know. And this is where what sprung out a lot of, th of things called incarnational ministry, where we're basically we're going into the world and we're going to be Jesus, right? And by be Jesus, it was usually defined as go into the world and just do good works and help people and etc. like that. Well, the problem is if we just take a verse like this and say, okay, as Jesus was sent into the world, so we are sent into the world, we do the exact same things. Well, there has to be discontinuity immediately, doesn't there? Because what aren't there things that Jesus does that we are never going to do? Yeah, I think so. Like, namely, die for anyone's sins, redeem the world, give life to those who believe. We're nobody's Messiah. We can't do all many of the things that Jesus did. So there's discontinuity. But where's the continuity? Well, it is marvelous. And it's how we are sent, as the Son was sent, in that way, so we are sent into the world. See, the sent one now becomes the sender, and we become the sent ones, sent by the Lord Jesus to the same place, into the world. We have the same enablement by the Holy Spirit. We are the, I think, um, I think John Carson put it, we're like the continuing reality of of, of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent. 
See, God continues to love the world and He continues to send. Well, as I, as the Father sent me, so the Lord Jesus says to each one of us this morning, so I send you. You are sent into the world. Why? What for? Well, the mission of witnessing about Jesus. You are not Jesus, but you are a witness to Jesus and His reality. I think this kind of explains and this kind of climaxes the things we've seen so far, holds them together, explains why, why do we have the joy? Well, at least to one end, it's so that the world would see there's joy, like ultimate and forever, and we got nothing like it. It's missional. Why are we to stay and not be taken out of the world? Well, it's because we're sent. We, we, we're on mission. The world needs to hear the gospel. The world needs the Lord. We can't leave. Why are we kept from the evil one? Kept from compromise. Why? Because if we compromise, then we've got nothing to offer the world. We've got no gospel. Why are we sanctified? Because we are sent into the world the way the Son was sent into the world on a mission from the Father. You see, the, the mission just... These are the ways it happens. The mission can't happen if we just got like zero joy in the gospel. We just don't like it or enjoy it at all. Well, you can't commend what you don't cherish. We cannot be on mission if we're out of the world. We cannot be on mission if we've compromised ourselves with the world. We have to be sent people into the world. We are all, if you like, in this sense, missionaries. And it's the ultimate thing to give our lives for, hey, Jesus uses his final words on, on earth. How? To give us the Great Commission. It wasn't just for the disciples, for each one of us. To go into the world, make disciples. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter whether you're high status or low status, or you, you, you do this or you do that. You're rich, you're poor, you're from whatever background. We all get to do this together. Share the greatest news in all the universe of hope in a Savior. That's what it means to be set apart. It's surely sanctified. No one else is sharing the gospel. Only Christians are doing that, right? Spurgeon says, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. He writes, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, at least that let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I was thinking of Paul's words in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, where he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Sent ambassadors for Christ. Representatives of Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love that verse. I love that verse for so many reasons. But one is just the, the attitude of Paul saying, you know, we, we're sent as ambassadors into the world, like making appeals on behalf of Christ, and then he kind of just makes the appeal. He doesn't just describe it. He's like, we implore you on behalf of Christ. This is not me speaking. Christ is in mysteriously speaking through me, and I'm imploring you begging you. I'm not just reasoning. I'm not just kind of like just a, a cold discussion. I'm imploring you on behalf of King Jesus, be reconciled to God. That's the message. You can be reconciled to God. What greater way is there to be sanctified in the world, set apart in the world, than to have that mission banner over our lives I do this, I go to the kids' sport because I'm making disciples for Jesus. I go to the movies, I go to the sport, I do like the, the, the million things that take up our lives because what? I have a mission over it all. I'm imploring you. And I'm saying this right now because maybe you're not a Christian this morning. I'm imploring On behalf of Christ, you can be reconciled to God. Verse 19 closes by drawing us back to Christ and he grounds all this in the gospel. He says this, and and for their sake, Jesus prays, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Consecrate's the same, same word as sanctify. Jesus says, I'm, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart for a task as well. 
And who's, for whose sake does he set apart himself? For their sake. What is the task that Jesus does for the sake of everyone else? It's, what he's, it's exactly what he's about to do the next day. He will die on the cross. He will take on the sin of all who have come to believe in him. He will take the punishment deserved, the wrath deserved, because God is righteous and sin has to be punished. But he loves and he takes it on himself in his son. And he rises again from death so that everyone who believes in him and puts their faith in him and turns from their sin will have life, be reconciled to God and have life, life now, life forever. He will make the persecutions and the sufferings of this world, like Nathan prayed earlier, incomparable. But notice what it says, how it finishes, that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, I set myself apart for their sake so that they as well, us as well, we will be sanctified, different, set apart in the world for this great mission. Let me wrap it up then. How then shall we live in the world? How are we going to live? Well, Jesus prays to the Father for exactly that. How are we going to live in the world? Will we seek to live the way that Jesus prays that we will live? It would be good to, to live joyful, hated by the world, not abandoning the world, not compromised by the world, sanctified in the world by the truth of God's Word, and sent into the world to share the good news of the Gospel. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I, you know, Christians probably are a bit strange to you, right? And... We don't mind that, okay, that's okay, because it's, it, it's kind of how it ought to be. We ought to be strange, we are different, but the difference is not because we're awesome, or we, we, we're special, or it's God's grace has done a work in our lives. We've been reconciled to God, we've been forgiven of all of our sins. He's at work in us through the hardest things, the best things, it's... It's the most wonderful thing to be a Christian and to be a Christian in this world and to live forever and to have that kind of hope. So whilst we probably are weird and strange and all of those things, that's okay because it's those things that we actually are offering. It's those things which define us and we have all the joy in the world because of. And that's an offer for every single person, no matter their background. There's no such thing as worthiness of this. So that's an offer for everyone. Let me pray.